In the autumn of 1977, Phyllis and Alan Moore were awaiting their first child. This represented a crucial point for Alan. He always held the idea that it would be nice at some point in the future to actually make a living doing something that he enjoyed rather than something he despised, which was pretty much everything other than drawing and writing comics. He figured that if he didn't give up the despisable job he had at the time and take a shot at an artistic career before the baby was born, he would never have the courage to do it. Well, he quit and decided to bet on himself. Now, Alan and Phyllis were receiving benefits at the time, which amounted to 42 pounds and 50 pence a week, the bare minimum they needed to live on, according to Alan. He had decided that he would measure his success by his ability to earn more than that through his writing. Ultimately, this bet he made on himself would pay off in ways he could have never imagined. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, creators, and those who dare to dare. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and on this episode, we take a more in-depth look into the formative years of one of the creators of Watchmen featured on episode 30 of our series. That one is the legendary Alan Moore. to make one thing very clear. It annoys me when people talk about Alan Moore's V for Vendetta or Alan Moore's Marvelman, and I'm not going to enjoy hearing about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. I can't claim to be an individual artist in my own right. The end result, the strip you see on the page, is the meeting between me and the artist. That's where the creation is. I've been incredibly lucky with the artists I've worked with." End quote. Alan Moore was born in Northampton, England at St. Edmund's Hospital on November 18, 1953, blind in his left eye. Now, somewhere between four and five years old, he was reading with his parents who, unlike many of their neighbors, valued literacy, encouraging him at every turn. Not big readers themselves, his father occasionally read pulp novels and some anthropology, he even suggested once that the second thing he'd ever seen his mother read was one of his Swamp Thing works. Now, despite this lack of visual inspiration, Alan quickly became an omnivorous reader. He developed a taste for fantasy stories early on, evidenced by the fact that the first book he picked out when he joined the library at the age of five was called The Magic Island. Over time, he managed to soak up his share of mythology and folklore. Now, early in 1962, at the age of eight, he asked his mother to pick up a copy of the DC war comic Blackhawk. In hopes of getting the comic he desired, he described it to his mother as having a lot of people who all wore the same blue uniform. When she returned, much to his disappointment, his mother had bought Fantastic Four number three. The disappointment didn't last for long, however, as he soon became completely infatuated with the comic. From that point on, he began to live and breathe comics, as well as American culture. Four years later, 1966, 
came yet another turning point. Now, to give a little backstory, you see, every year his parents would take Alan and his younger brother Mike for a week at the North Dean's Caravan Camp in Great Yarmouth on the east coast of England. One positive consequence for the seaside businesses was that they had an opportunity to captivate the attention of millions of bored children. Now, the British comics companies catered to these youth by printing summer specials of their titles, which were larger comics that often featured reprinted material or activities like coloring pages and stories involving the regular characters on holiday. Unsold stock was also retired to this seaside retreat, ending its life fading on spinner racks and boxes in seafront shops. The more would trawl through them hoping to uncover some unexpected treasure. It was on one such family holiday in 1966 that he found the collections of highlights from Mad, introducing him to Super Duper Man, which was an obvious parody on Superman. He also came across an old hardback annual featuring the British superhero, Young Marvel Man, which he was less excited about, but he liked the cover and thus decided to buy it anyway. Time has shown that both comics have had a long-lasting impression on Moore. When the family holiday was over, they returned home to their three-bedroom terraced council house at 17 St. Andrews Road in the boroughs area of Northampton, opposite a large railway station. Living in the house at the time was Alan's father, Ernest, a laborer at a brewery, and Sylvia, his mother, who worked at a print shop, his maternal grandmother, Clara Mallard, and his younger brother, Mike. Now, the family had lived in the same house for roughly 30 to 40 years. Now, just before Alan was born, it had also accommodated Uncle Les and Aunt Queenie and their baby Jim, who slept in the wardrobe drawer, as well as another Aunt Hilda, her husband Ted, and their children, John and Eileen. The Burroughs area, now known as Spring Burroughs of Northampton, remains one of the most deprived areas of the United Kingdom. For centuries, the town's main industry was boot and shoe manufacturing. All of the houses were approximately 100 years old, with outside toilets and no running hot water. The Moore's house was, however, considered luxurious compared to many in the neighborhood due to the simple fact that the council had installed electric lighting. Ernest Moore earned around 780 pounds a year as compared to the national average of about 1,330 pounds. He once told Alan that 15 pounds a week wasn't enough and he hoped that one day his son might earn 18 pounds. The family used baths made of tin filled with water heated in a copper boiler, but that wasn't so uncommon at the time. On the bright side, they never went hungry. His family also had a television when Alan was growing up. He was also given a little pocket money each week, which would soon explicitly go to comic books. Quote, I never really thought much about material luxury. That was kind of where I was starting from. My family never had anything. It was never as grim as it sounds because it was normal in the context of what I was used to." End quote. In 1965, Britain faced a housing crisis. Millions, like the Moors, still lived in Victorian conditions. 
hundred-year-old homes of which many were now badly dilapidated. The Second World War had seen the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, damage or destroy much of the housing stock in England, particularly in the cities. Add to that the post-war population boom. The British government set plans in motion to create large towns laid out with cars in mind, as well as modern industrial plants. This all to ease pressure on the largest cities. This construction would be overseen by powerful development corporations. What could go wrong? Well, for the Moors, as with many other families, it was a catastrophic disruption. When he was 17, Allen's family was relocated to Abington, formerly a prosperous part of Northampton. His 84-year-old grandmother, Clara, died within six months. The council moved Moore's other grandmother, Minnie, from the house in Green Street where she had lived all her life to an old people's home, and she died within three months. He has no doubt what caused their deaths, saying, Being moved from the place where you got your roots was enough to kill most of those people. The place where I had grown up was more or less completely destroyed. It wasn't that they put anything better there. It was just that they were able to make more money out of it without all those bothersome people. Just two weeks after the death of his grandmother, Clara, Allen was expelled from the Northampton School for Boys because of a reputation that he was an LSD dealer. Later, he would say, the problem with being an LSD dealer, if you're sampling your own product, is your view of reality will probably become horribly distorted, and you may believe you have supernatural powers and you are completely immune to any form of retaliation and prosecution, which is not the case. Despite his LSD dealings, the expulsion from school had been technically groundless. Authorities searched him, but... There were absolutely no drugs on him. The only thing that they had was the hearsay evidence of a number of his schoolmates who had named him. They were young and easily intimidated by the police, but, more importantly, hearsay from teenagers should not have been viewed as conclusive proof. Nevertheless, he was expelled from school. Fortunately, however, there were no charges brought against him. Thus, he still had a clean record. After being expelled from school, nearly all of his friends cut ties with him, but at least he still had and lived with his parents on Norman Road in Abington. Then, one day he noticed an advert, Cartoonist Wanted. The job involved drawing ads for a pet store. He used Letratone, which is a technique for applying textures and shades to drawings. He wanted to show that he was well-versed in sophisticated shading techniques. In retrospect, however, he would come to understand that what he drew was quite a scary dog. Naturally, it was rejected. The company actually wanted a smiley picture of a puppy, which he could have done, but he thought they wanted to see what a brilliant artist he was. It was an humbling experience, to say the least, and with that... He gave up. Defeated, he decided to go down to the labor exchange and take whatever job was available. He undoubtedly understood what he was in for, given that his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had all been laborers. 
The first job he took was in the co-op skinning yard on Bedford Road where he was paid $6 a week to cut up sheep that had been soaking overnight in vats of water and their own body fluids. He lasted for about two months before being sacked for smoking cannabis in the tea room. He then worked as a cleaner in the 57-bedroom Grand Hotel on Gold Street and later worked in a W.H. Smith warehouse packing books, magazines, and, of course, comics. Fast forward to the proverbial dive off the cliff to follow one's dreams. As mentioned earlier, his determination to earn more than they were receiving on benefit payments led to Allen's first professional work, which came in late 1978 after he submitted illustrations to Neil Spencer at the new musical Express, NME. Spencer was an associate of the Northampton Arts Lab and paid more 40 pounds per piece for pictures of Elvis Costello and Malcolm McLaren. Soon thereafter, he would finally secure a regular paying job with Sounds, a crummy British rock music weekly. Sounds was quite low-minded in its own way, but it did have an interesting array of cartoonists working for them. As fate would have it, Sounds had a gap for another comic strip, and more just happened to send in Roscoe Moscoe at the right time. Roscoe Moscoe was a half-page strip that owed more than a little to Art Spiegelman's Ace Hole. The first installment appeared in the March 31, 1979 issue. Sounds had a reported circulation of 250,000 copies a week, which, if true, would mean it was bought by more people than any other publication featuring Moore's work in either Britain or America, until he wrote for Image in the early 90s. The 35 pounds a week Moore earned for writing and drawing Roscoe Moscow was not quite enough to live on, however, so he adopted a pseudonym in order to hide his earnings. So for the next few years, Kurt Vile would prove to be prolific and multi-talented as he also wrote reviews, interviews, and did some drawings for spot illustrations for sounds. Additionally, he contributed to other publications and even had a hand in pinning a single by the band Mystery Guests. Not quite yet where he wanted to be, he was still searching for more mainstream opportunities. He would pitch Nutter's Ruin, a parody of a village soap opera, to his local free newspaper, the North Ants Post. His pitch included a half-page strip outlining the cast and their foibles. The editor did admire the art, but wanted something more for children, and suggested that perhaps a strip about a little cat or something would go over well. Allen then came up with Maxwell the Magic Cat, basing the protagonist on his own cat, Tonto. The first strip appeared in the August 25, 1979 edition of the North Ants Post. The drawing style was technically primitive. The jokes, on the other hand, were funnier and more elaborate. He soon, however, abandoned the idea of telling a running story and came to enjoy the challenge of coming up with a new five-panel gag week after week. His deadline being three days before publication, he could make the strip extremely topical. Moore chose to write the strip under the pseudonym Jill DeRay. Now later, he would take great delight in recounting that the pseudonym had come from Gilles DeRay, a 15th century demon summoner, child molester, and serial killer. <laughs> we'll leave that right there. 
Emboldened by having got that past his editor, he occasionally steered the strip into dark or overtly political territory with a healthy regular dose of surrealism. He had a fun run with this project. Maxwell the Magic Cat would continue to run until October 1986. This was just after the first issues of Watchmen had been published and he had become the most renowned writer of comics on the planet. Reflecting on his initial goal and that jump-off-the-cliff moment, in 1979, he was earning 35 pounds from Sounds and 10 pounds from Maxwell the Magic Cat, which was more than the 42 pounds and 50 pence he had been receiving in benefits, thus reaching his goal. With this success, Alan Moore deemed himself a full-time professional comics creator. Let's end this episode as usual with one final quote from the comic book master creator himself. I don't subscribe to the precious attitude toward art where you sit and wait for the muse to settle on your brow. You can't just wait for an inspiration. Not when you're doing it for a living. I mean, Van Gogh could, but he ended up penniless in a loony bin. If you wait for the muse to fly in your window, you'll wait for weeks, and she'll be off down the road somewhere screwing around with some 15-year-old kid who's just written his first poem about the evils of modern warfare. <laughs> You've got to develop a mechanical approach. Think about what you're doing and experiment. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words or paypal.me slash house of words podcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez, narrated and edited by me, Jason Lemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden.